This week on the show, we have 3BSD13 finally here, a multi-factor authentication tutorial in OpenBSD, KDE on FreeBSD in 2021, Octet2 and why that is, NetBSD, a GSOC report we are reading to you, a working decompiler on OpenBSD is finally available, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 400. Wow, let that sink in. 400 episodes of BSD Now. FreeBSD became 13, by the way. Uh, this episode is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com, the online backups for the truly paranoids. This episode is recorded on the 21st of April, 2021. And I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. I'm Tom Jones. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to this, let's say, triple-hosted episode what's happening clearly uh you guys liked me so much that you've uh you've insisted that i, I continue recording episodes with you indeed uh-huh. yes uh, so insist- tom has very kindly agreed to uh help uh fill in the episodes and make sure that you continue to get a bsd now episode in your uh player or whatever every week uh and so tom and i will be basically alternating uh hosting duties for a while uh, in order to make sure that we can keep up episodes for you guys uh, without overburdening ourselves. Yeah, and that gives you as a listener a different perspective each week or every other week. And so that makes the show interesting to continue listening, right? Not that we were boring before. <laughs> um, Something. <laughs> okay, let's let's try this thing. And oh, of course, we have headlines and we couldn't have picked a better one for this special episode 400 episodes of bsd now this is a record definitely and freebsd's release engineering team has also uh, grinding the gears and has finally given us freebsd 13 and we are looking at the uh, announcement yeah so this is uh, the culmination of basically two and a half years of development in the the current branch of freebsd uh, and so there's a lot of new stuff in here i'm not sure that all of the things that changed made it into the release notes because there's just so much stuff that goes on uh but there's a a lot of good stuff in here i guess for me one of the the biggest headline items is the new version of zfs of course uh so freebsd imported open zfs uh the new branch from upstream that supports both freebsd and linux natively uh as the version of zfs moving away from the older uh, alumos version that was not getting updates nearly as quickly um so while the ZFS commands report version 2.0.0, I know there's been some confusion about this uh, because the later releases uh, that happened were actually you know 2.0.1 and .2 and so on. But um, the version of OpenZFS that's actually in FreeBSD 13 is the uh, a snapshot of the master branch of OpenZFS between uh, 2.0 and 2.1. So it's uh, most of the features that are in 2.1 are in FreeBSD 13, including DRAID. Um, and uh, the slightly weird version that's being reported is uh, an artifact of the way versioning worked in OpenZFS. Although uh, after last week's meeting, that was fixed. So in the future, when we update to newer versions of OpenZFS, uh, you'll see FreeBSD uh, either report a release that it's on 
or more likely if it continues to follow the master branch, it'll report something like version 2.1.99, meaning that it's some snapshot of the master branch of OpenZFS after 2.1, but before 2.2. But anyway, this brings in lots of features, enhancements, and improvements, including uh, a lot of work to make ZFS work better when there's fragmentation in the pool, or when you have uh, miss, uh, VDEVs that aren't the same size, or when you just have VDEVs that are different amounts of full. So if you, you know, added a bunch more disks to the pools later on, when the pool, you know, the first half of the disks are 70% full and the second half are only 10% full, uh, that could lead to some weird performance issues. Uh, and there's a lot of fixes for that in there. Uh, in addition, there's the new DRAID feature, uh, which we've talked about a little bit before uh, on here when we link to the, the article we wrote about it on Clara's website. but uh, basically allows you to combine a large number of disks into uh, what is virtually a bunch of separate VDEVs, but acts as one. So when you resilver, uh, under the normal circumstances, if you have, you know, three RAID Z VDEVs, if a disk in one of those RAID Z fails, you read from the other disks in that RAID Z and write to the one replacement disk or the spare. And the other disks in the pool don't actually really get involved because they don't contain any data that would be on the missing disk. With DRAID, each the content of each disk is actually uh, distributed across all the disks. So when one disk fails, every other disk in the pool is involved in reading and reconstructing the data. But it also uses virtual spares. So rather than the spare being a specific disk set aside, it's actually made up of a chunk of every disk in the pool. So when you're writing to the spare, you're actually reading from every disk except for the failed one and writing to every disk except for the failed one. Uh, so you get a lot more performance on the resilver than you do in uh, the older style. For me, it's that standard compression and the, um, the, the encryption feature that's exciting. Yes, I almost forgot oh. about the, <laughs> the Z standard stuff, which is a culmination of work I started back in 2016 to add that. Uh, thanks to the FreeBSD Foundation, I was able to finish that and get it into OpenZFS 2.0, and it is uh, now part of FreeBSD, including support to boot from it. Uh, and encryption is now available, although support to boot from that is not available. But as long as you only encrypt your home directory or something, or other data sets and not the root data set, you can use uh, the encryption on your boot pool too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very, very good. I like that. Be careful, though, when you update your pool um, with 13, with the newer ZFS features, you won't be able to go back to 12.2 because it doesn't have the ZFS bits. Um, so when you do that, it's a one-way street. What else is in there? I, I think maybe a real important one is it's not actually a software change, but it's the promotion of 64-bit ARM uh, or AR64 to Tier 1 status, which is not a, a change in, in software, but it is a change of the project's approach to the architecture. Uh, and so from now on, there's going to be a lot more support for ARM64. And I think this really does recognize that the architecture has matured. I think this is a great thing to see. Yeah, for sure. It means that there's FreeBSD update support for ARM64. It means that we will actually uh, make a lot more effort to make sure packages are available for ARM64 and that bugs in ARM64 will be treated as a, a serious bug in FreeBSD and not just, oh, that's in that weird hardware over there, like MIPS and so on, that we, someone might have time to get to it, but we're not going to hold up uh, the rest of FreeBSD to look at it. Whereas now that it's tier one, it means that, yes, any problems here are considered very serious and, and part of FreeBSD. 
and it's basically just a commitment from the FreeBSD community to keep uh, the the ARM64 support basically the target is being as good as the AMD64 support. Mm-hmm. And I guess uh, kind of tangentially related to that is the demotion of i386 to tier two. Which uh, I, so I don't see in the release x86. notes. Yeah, I think it was announced, but I don't see it in the release notes. Um, so 32-bit x86 was demoted to tier two. Uh, this means that it'll still get FreeBSD updates and, and so on, but i386 specific bugs uh, will probably get less attention, uh, and in general, it just gets less testing. Uh, and in particular, uh, recently, uh, I guess, you know, over the last couple of years, we've had things like Spectre and Meltdown that required uh, significantly different fixes on 32-bit than 64-bit, uh, and it caused quite a bit of problems. So uh, with the demotion to Tier 2, it's mostly uh, taking away the guarantee from the FreeBSD security team that they will address those bugs uh, with the same... I don't know, ferocity as they would for x86. Uh, and so, yeah, 32-bit is is being demoted, but, uh, you know, ARM64 is a much better platform uh, to have as tier one anyway. Mm. Uh, we also removed ARM5, but we don't have to say a lot about that. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad we did that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in, other, in other changes, there's um, changes for, for device support, and there's a big list there. Uh, there's changes that cover hardware stuff. Um, and there are a couple of networking changes which are definitely worth highlighting. Uh, mostly pushed by Richard Schaffniger, there have been big big changes in TCP and TCP congestion control. And so we now have support for a proportional rate reduction, or PRR, uh, which improves recovery uh, during SAC, which is a great feature to have pulled in. Um, and we've also updated and aligned more to the, the specifications for the cubic congestion control. Cubic is the default congestion control in most Linux Linux distributions um, if they don't use BBR. Uh, and, and Richard is putting a lot of work um, normalizing that to the, the RFC and making the behavior align more with what you see on Linux. And I think this is a big step because our, our implementation came in quite a long time ago and didn't see a lot of, of updates. And so the congestion control is more similar. Um, there's been a lot of support a lot of work to add support for in-kernel TLS. And so there are a couple of changes that, that come through together. Um, and so the first on the list here under general network is uh, a new type of mbuff, which can represent multiple unmapped physical pages. And this works as a send file improvement, and this was sponsored by Netflix. Uh, and coupled with this and, and clo- sort of closely te- coupled closely together is uh, KTLS work. So that's kernel um, transport layer security. Um, and with the use of a KTLS aware SSL library, it means that you can actually offload uh, the crypto work into the kernel and send file and KTLS coupled together give you big performance improvements. And I know there's work uh, going on now to integrate that with NFS. So there should hopefully be encrypted NFS improvements. Yeah. Uh, you know, thinking back to like the FreeBSD four days, send file was this big enhancement where you know, if you had a web server serving a lot of files to a lot of uh, people, um, you had this problem that you're basically get the connection coming in and then uh, the web server gets the request and says, okay, I need to open this file and read some blocks from it. So you go off into the kernel and read the blocks and copy them out to user space. And then uh, the web server was then immediately just taking that buffer of data and writing it to a socket, copying it back into the kernel, which would then send it out to the network stack. And so SendFile was this optimization just saying, hey, kernel, 
I have this open file and this open socket. Please send this range of bytes from this file out that socket for me. Uh, and it was a very big improvement for web servers on FreeBSD. And it was used on the FTP server and a bunch of other things too. Uh, I think even Samba used it. The problem came when suddenly you need to encrypt that traffic. So you couldn't use send file. You had to go back to copying it out to user space, encrypting it in the web server, and then writing it to the socket. So KTLS restores this by allowing you to just say, all right, I've opened the socket. Now I do a, a set socket opt and configure the socket with the symmetric key after I've already done all the key negotiation in the web server. And basically say, all right, kernel, everything I write to the socket, please encrypt it with this key uh, and do all the work in the kernel. And it goes back to, you know, the good old days of, of having the kernel do all the work. And then being able to do that uh, even in NFS uh, with the new, I think it's NFS 4.2 or 4.3 that's going to have TLS support, it means that it'll also work for NFS. And so, yeah, it's a really nice improvement. Uh, and beyond that, there have also been changes to the uh, the amazing ping utility. Um, it has seen updates to support network QoS, um, IP, DSCP, which are... Um, classes that allow the network to evaluate how traffic should be treated, mostly when it should be dropped. Um, and and finally, after many years of trying and many Google Summer of Code projects proposed, Ping and Ping 6 have been merged, and now the Ping utility supports IPv4 and IPv6, uh, but there is still a legacy Ping 6. I think it's just a front end. There's still a Ping 6 there so that you don't have to update all your scripts. Uh, and it, it's it's a funny thing just to see uh, some of the older tools being updated. Um, and maybe as an interesting one, it might not have a big impact on other people. SCTP is now built as a kernel module, whereas before it was built into the kernel. Uh, and so that should allow you to re reduce the usage of it, usage of SCTP and save some some memory maybe um, when, when you're not using it. Well, I think the, the, the big advantage to that is uh, there was a series of vulnerabilities that were being found in SCTP and having it not built into your kernel so that it's only loaded if you actually use it meant that a lot fewer people are affected each time there's a vulnerability as well. I think was one of the, the reasons why it was moved off to a module so that it wouldn't be loaded for everyone that wasn't using it. Yeah, and so that, that saved you time doing uh, updates for changes. Um, but as long as you weren't running any software that opened SCTP sockets, you weren't typically vulnerable to right. these. But it does, in the default, it allows you to decrease the surface area, which is always a good thing. Sure. Well, for me, after I did the first reboot, I saw the nice shiny graphics that we have in the EFI loader now, which is also a good ah, change. Yes. Uh, no? Thomas Soom, uh, or Thomas Soom did a whole lot of work to uh, make the really, really shiny uh, bootloader menu now. Uh, so it's full graphics instead of all text-based. Mm. It looks very slick. <laughs> because how often do you need to reboot your FreeBSD machine anyway? <laughs> but yeah, it's there, it's looking nice, and uh, it has some other improvements that are listed in the bootloader changes section. Yep, uh, a couple other interesting things. Um, support for uh, the new ARMv8 crypto module was added. So this is a driver that's the you know effective analog to AES&I on x86, but for the ARM64 platform. Uh, so if your ARM64 chip supports the CPU instructions to offload, it provides much faster versions of, of things like ASGCM for IPsec and that kernel TLS stuff we talked about. So that'll be really nice. And uh, Geli, the disk encryption uh, 
finally went through with removing some of the previously deprecated algorithms. So if you were using, I think it was like Blowfish or Camellia or some of the other ciphers that uh, are not safe anymore, uh, they had deprecation warnings for the last version or two and they've finally been completely removed. So that was uh, nice to see that happening so that people can't accidentally configure their disk encryption with an encryption that's not very good. Mm -hmm. So yeah, check out the full release if you haven't done it already. I know people were waiting for it. And uh, yeah, happy upgrading. Uh, oh, there's one to watch out for in the errata or late breaking news or whatever. Um, one of the other features that went into 13 was support for Q and Q VLANs. So that's uh, a VLAN inside of a VLAN, uh, which is mostly used when you have larger trunk lines, like the the point to point link I have uh, between the data center and my house uses that I get. I can set whatever VLANs I want, and then the access device at my house here stuffs all that in whatever VLAN I'm assigned by the ISP and then sends it across their network. Um, but as part of this, the ifconfig utility gained the ability to set uh, an extra parameter on VLANs called the VLAN proto, which sets whether it's a regular VLAN or a Q&Q &Q VLAN. Um, but the FreeBSD 11 and 12 versions of ifconfig don't set that because it didn't exist. Uh, and this can cause uh, a bit of a hiccup during your upgrade. So if you use FreeBSD update to upgrade the server and you've done the first FreeBSD update install, which is installed the new kernel, and you reboot before doing the second one that updates the user land, including ifconfig, um, then the FreeBSD 12 version of ifconfig will try to stand up your VLAN and set the protocol to zero instead of VLAN or QNQ and it won't, the VLAN won't work. Uh, so if you use VLANs and are upgrading a remote server, you're going to want to be careful of that and probably make sure to update uh, your kernel and user LAN and then do one reboot instead of the normal process of doing two. Uh, looking at getting an errata notice, uh, we have a fix for that in head now so that the kernel will default to VLAN instead of an invalid Ethernet protocol type uh, when that happens. But it's easy to work around, uh, and I put a note out there. So just if you're upgrading a remote server and it uses VLANs, uh, you maybe be a little extra careful. Yep, that's good to know. Uh, yes, next item. Besides this one, we have a how-to for you over at dataswamp.org to enable multi-factor authentication on OpenBSD. So Lean is uh, writing about how to do that. And she writes that, uh, well, what is TOTP in the first place? Uh, so this is the time-based one-time password utility. So that these uh, passwords are not uh, valid beyond the second try, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, okay, but uh, from the beginning, in this article, uh, she explains how to add a bit more security to your OpenBSD system by adding a requirement for user logging into the system locally or by SSH. And so this is uh, explaining a setup of two-factor authentication using TOTP and OpenBSD. So why or when do you want to need this or why is this necessary? Uh, it adds a burden in terms of usability. In addition to your password, you will require a device that will be pre-configured to generate the one-time passwords. If you don't have it, you won't be able to log in. That's the whole point. So let's say you activated two-factor authentication for SSH connections. On an important server, you get your private SSH key stolen. Oops. And without a password, of course, yeah, brouhaha, the hacker will not be able to connect to the SSH server without having access to your TOTP generator. And that's a good thing in this case, uh, as bad as it is uh, getting a private key stolen. 
Um, so here's the quick list of TOTP software, the command line. There's an OAuth tool from package OAuth-toolkit. Uh, the GUI and multi-platforms have KeePass XC and Androids have FreeOTP Plus and OTP, OneTime Pass, etc. Many, many more. Setup is done by adding the package, login underscore OAuth. Then you have to edit your, which file is this? Uh, ah, this is the config file for, oh no, this is the login conf, right? So there's a separate section there. Uh, you add the section there for a TOTP user or a TOTP service and one for TOTP with password. And that is added to your login.conf DB file, uh, running cap underscore MKDB on etc login conf to update that. And then you use a local, uh, your local login will, um, when logging on a TTY or your X session, anything requiring your system password, you can modify the users you want to use TOTP. You can say this user should, this, sh this user shouldn't, uh, by adding them to the according login class in this command. So that's why you create this user class. So you can say this user should use this login class and the other users don't. Uh, in your uh, directory, you run uh, the key generation using OpenSSL and create a random hex uh, character string to uh, generate that key. Of course, you can use any other means. Uh, then you secure that key using change mode 400 and then running Python to import the TOTP. Oh yes, that's why uh, you need to encode it in uh, base 32 and then base 62. So there's a uh, little Python script that does it for you. So you don't have to bother with the uh, encryption yourself. Uh, the SSH login finally is done using the TOTP configuration with your SSHD config and adding two sections there gives you uh, the desired configuration. Cool, nice and easy and gives you extra security for not much money. Yeah, so basically you can configure SSH to require two things rather than just your public key or your password. You can say you need both. Very nice, yeah. Time for the news roundup this week. We have an entry here, KDE on FreeBSD 2021-02. Yeah, so I think this is Adrian DeGroote again. Uh, and he starts saying, uh, gosh, second octant already, which provoked a long discussion before the show. <laughs> Why is so that? trying to figure out what octant <laughs> is. And apparently that's the, the second eighth of the year. Um, I guess that's how they measure things in the KDE project. Uh, and so there's some updates on, on KDE bits uh, and KDE stuff that has landed in uh, Octant 2. Okay, now I was trying to wonder why there's a small O in the date, but it's a, it's a letter O. Um, so there are new, the, the KDE framework 5.79 has landed with some hot fixes. Um, there's been Plasma Pass updates. There are new ports. So there's Astro K-Stars, um, which allow you to, to look at the stars. I think right now, this time of year, um, April 2021, you should be able to see Mars quite well because we're quite close to Mars. Um, and there's also graphics KGeotag, which will help you locate where your photos have been taken, assuming they have geotags, but it won't work on Mars, unfortunately. So if you've got any of your uh, your home your home photos from the Mars rover, they probably aren't going to come up. Um, PyQT has been updated, and there's been gentle work on QT6 ports. Um, and there's some other non-KDE bits that, that he mentions. Um, updates to CMake and VLC. Um, GNOME updates that I don't understand. Um, LibProxy has been updated uh, and some other ports. And so it's good to get uh, an eight times a year update on KDE is great. 
Yeah, I know. I saw on Twitter he was having quite a bit of fun with the CMake updates. So I'm glad he got that working. Uh, the one other tool they did mention is interesting one, the uh, an ABI consistency checking tool. And so there's uh, API or sorry, ABI compliance checker and uh, lib Abigail. Uh, I think we're using something like that in ZFS now to detect when we accidentally change the ABI of uh, lib ZFS and so on. Uh, so those are, I know we've also talked about trying to do something like that in FreeBSD to better detect uh, when we make a change that is changing some kernel data structure that will matter uh, in particular to not accidentally change the ABI when backporting stuff to say FreeBSD 12. So next up, we have a Google Summer of Code report from the NetBSD project. So they've uh, put a link up to their uh, code here where you can find the GSOC 2020 branch. At the time of writing, some of the stuff is still missing or whatever, but the initial and defined goal of the project was to make the system uh, p open or system and p open uh, system calls, which you know system is uh, how you basically fork something via the shell in in C, or p open is how you open a process with some extra parameters. To make both of those actually use the spawn or sorry POSIX underscore spawn uh, syscall internally, uh, which is a, a much newer API for starting a process. Uh, and that was completed back in June of last year. For the second part, I was given the task of replacing uh, fork and exec calls in the standard shell, SH, or ASH, I think, in NetBSD, uh, in such a scenario. Uh, similar to the previous goal, we determined that uh, through the implementation of an initial uh, bit of it, that it gets uh, performance improvements uh, and to make sure that it's actually correct uh, and that we collect metrics on why POSIX spawn in this case shouldn't be used. So find any cases where you don't want to use POSIX spawn as well. Uh, the second part means that in practice that I had to add and change code in the kernel and add a new public libc function uh, and learn to understand the internals of the shell itself. So looking at part one, so prior work back in 2012, another DSOC student, Charles Zhang, had added the POSIX spawn syscall uh, which according to the original uh, SourceForge repository from back in 2012, that the in-kernel implementation of POSIXPON provided performance benefits compared to uh, some other systems, including compared to FreeBSD at the time, uh, or other systems that used a user space implementation uh, of POSIXPON back in 2012. After one week of reading POSIX and writing code, and two weeks of writing more code, and another one and a half weeks of fixing bugs in the code, I successfully implemented POSIX spawn uh, to replace system and popen internally. Uh, the biggest challenge for me was to understand uh, the POSIX requirements and to read the standard. I'm used to reading uh, more formal books, but I you know, can't remember working on something quite like POSIX uh, before. So the system call uh, is really weird. The system call called system. <laughs> it's just yeah. slightly weird. But uh, was changed to basically use uh, POSIX spawn with attributes uh, where we had uh, used SIGS action before and POSIX spawn, which replaces the exec VE and VFORC calls. And then POPEN and POPEN VE were updated since POPEN and POPEN VE implementations in NetBSD's libc use a couple of shared helper functions. I was able to change both functions while keeping the majority of the changes focused on the helper function. Uh, called pdes child uh, is an internal function in popen.c now takes one more argument which is the command 
for the command to pass to the POSIX spawn, which uh, is called from that PDES child. Uh, on a high level, um, what happens is that that uh, helper function and in popen is that we first lock the PID list mutex. Uh, then we create a file action list for all the current uh, popen or popen VE instances uh, and the side of the pipe, uh, if it's not necessary, and move standard in or standard in uh, out around and un then unlock the PID list and return the list and destroy the old process. In the new version, this helper function now handles the majority of what uh, popen or popenve did for us. We have to initialize the file action object and uh, make sure all the right default contents are there. And since we have to have error handling and a common return value for the function, uh, all that had to be done and they had to plumb that through. They also got the close and dupe to actions uh, now get replaced by corresponding file action syscalls. They're used to specify a series of actions to be formed by the POSIX spawn operation when it actually happens. Then for part two, the main goal of part two of the project was to change the shell uh, to determine which simple cases of fork or vfork and exec uh, could be replaced with POSIX spawn to be better. Uh, fork needs to create a new address space by cloning the current address space, or in the case of vfork, update at least some reference counts. Uh, POSIX spawn can avoid most of this as it creates a new address space from scratch. Uh, I remember seeing something problematic a, a user was running into. They had a very large Perl script that was uh, holding a lot of data in memory. And they were using system to call out to use, I think, MV to rename a file. And so because system was cloning the entire Perl script, it would have to mark all of the data that's in memory. There was gigabytes of, of data memory in, in this Perl script, mark it all copy on write and created this whole second copy of it to then immediately replace all of that with the tiny MV binary and run it to rename this file. <laughs> uh, and it caused some uh, pretty bad performance problems on FreeBSD 11 that were fixed on FreeBSD 12. Um, but it was just amusing to think of how the fork and exec stuff works. You end up copying this whole program to just immediately throw it away and load a different program instead to run it. Uh, and so it makes sense to, in that case, use vfork and say, I'm going to be running something else, so I don't want to copy all of the state from the current application. I just want to start this other one. I think in the case of the Perl script, it was just switching to using uh, the internal call of rename or whatever to just call libc like like mv does and not actually have to start another binary at all in order to rename a file and that solved the problem in the Perl script but uh it is interesting how some of these different bits all work together and and what actually happens under the hood when you you know have your shell start a program for you and lastly they said the current issue is that posix spawn as defined by posix has no good way of setting the process group for you and we found that uh, fish, uh, fish, a different shell, uh, just avoids POSIX spawn uh, when doing foreground processes so that uh, it can set the, uh, the process group. And then finally, they talk about their future steps. They would like to make a POSIX spawn P in the kernel. According to a conversation with another developer, the POSIX spawn P implementation we have uh, is just iterating over all of the uh, segments of the path environment variable and calling POSIX spawn until it succeeds. For some uh, 
changes, we might want a kernel implementation of POSIX spawn P as the pass search is supposed to happen in the uh, kernel. So the file actions are only ever run once and, and fixing that up to be less terrible would be good. We're also looking at replacing all of the fork and exec in SH. Uh, ideally, we want to replace all of the fork and exec with POSIX spawn. According to my mentors, there is a PMAP synchronization uh, as an impact of uh, constructing the VM space from scratch when using the vfork and the fewer interprocess interrupts that we could do the better it'll be and finally thank you to the fellow netbsd developers for answering questions and and putting up with the gsoc student uh and thanks to everyone uh and to the google summer of code project for making this possible the final news item we have is from uh brian callahan um and and it's about porting the d compiler to work on openbsd this is not the uh, D, D trace compiler, so the compiler for the D language in D trace, but the compiler for the next generation C replacement language, D. Uh, Brian, Brian writes, way back in 2017 is when I first heard about D. Seemed interesting, we didn't have a port of it. I like challenges, so I figured I would give it a try. I eventually managed to get LDC, the LLVM D compiler to build on OpenBSD, or at least its LTS version. That is the last version that does not need a decompiler to bootstrap it and claims to be able to build current versions of LDC. I never ended up trying it, so I was never able to confirm this, but there's no reason to doubt them. Back then I was stuck. C D inherits the C library entirely, and the D standard library Phobos effectively requires complete bindings to libc. There were none for OpenBSD, though there was a completed Phobos port for FreeBSD. I tried to replicate FreeBSD bindings on OpenBSD, but I was never able to finish it. And there were enough subtle differences between FreeBSD and OpenBSD that I did not have time to finish it. I would, it would have been on the perpetual back burner until I could devote some substantial resources to it. Um, and there he has a lovely block between 2017 and 2021 where other people sort of poked around and the the D language, D language changed. In the interim years, people continued to add support for OpenBSD. There have been commits regarding OpenBSD and support for DMD, the D reference compiler, D runtime, the static support library that provides libc bindings, and Phobos, the D standard library. I suspect no one ever really attempted to run the complete D toolchain on OpenBSD, however. These commits were not enough. However, I'm glad that I did not have to do that work, so so much to thanks to everyone who made my job easier. And then we finally get to this year, so 2021, the last mile. I had the time to finish this project. It began with a stroke of happenstance. There is no secret that I had been tracking GCC head on OpenBSD for a long time. As of GCC 9, GDC is incorporated into GCC, and it just so happens that at the moment, GDC's D front end is still written in C++. We might have been able to even been able to compile it. So I added D to the list of languages to build on my build bot and waited to see what happened. And it failed. Unsurprisingly, First over a business, add OpenBSD to libphobos's configure.target. Try again, and more failures in the math library bindings for OpenBSD. D runtime was looking for an underscore underscore FP classified D symbol, but on OpenBSD, that symbol is named underscore underscore FP classify. Fix that, and it builds. But it didn't actually support OpenBSD. Turns out you have to add additional support files to GCC to get GDC to recognize OpenBSD. Um, and, he, and he continues and he gets the, the changes going. Um, and then it is a matter of trying to get support upstreamed. 
And he says, I've ended up forward porting OpenBSD support for DMD, which was committed. This DMD, which can be bootstrapped from GDC, is able to rebuild itself when using the forward ported D runtime, which is pending commit. Having the reference compiler able to build itself is a great step towards continual D support. Even though the D language foundation does not officially support OpenBSD, Walter Bright, the creator of D, told me that upstreaming support for OpenBSD is welcome. Um, and so you can use the D compiler on, on OpenBSD now. While all three D compilers can be built once you have GDC, only GDC fully works. This is because D requires thread local storage, which OpenBSD does not yet support. GDC gets around this by using emulated TLS from GCC with the addition of GDC's own additional TLS emulation. This works fine on OpenBSD. I've not yet tried to port the GDC TLS emulation over to DMD or LDC, but it is on my list of things to try. Perhaps that would be sufficient. And the very last thing he did, the very first thing he did after getting the GDC um, working was to create a package that provides bindings for uh, provides D bindings for OpenBSD's pledge, which he says any decent language should have such bindings. He does suggest that a port might be in the future but there needs to be some more work going ahead. And this is obviously a condensed story covering five years of work. And it's great to see uh, those side projects actually being finished by somebody. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you know, uh, when I did the Z standard stuff, that started as a little side project and then went a little ways and then stalled for six or nine months or something. And then some other stuff happened uh, in upstream Z standard and that made it a lot easier and then it restarted and got somewhere and then got put on the back burner again and then came back and, you know, eventually was able to get it all finished and committed. It just took two or three times as many years as I expected it to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you definitely need a long breath for some of these projects. You never know how they turn out or how long they might take. Uh, before we start with our feedback and questions section, uh, we should mention our sponsor for this week, which is Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash BSD now for the online backups for the truly paranoids. Why would you want to do that? Well, three reasons. Encryption, of course. You want your backups to be encrypted when they go out into the cloud and they leave your computer encrypted. They are not encrypted on the cloud. Next thing, the source code is available. So if you're really paranoid, you might as well look at the source code and figure out if there are any hidden backdoors or something that's out of the ordinary. And you can do that. That's available for Tarsnap. The next is the deduplication. If you have a lot of files to back up, well, that might take some time and money to transfer or to encrypt. And with the deduplication that's built into Tarsnap, you don't have to do anything special there. It's all in there. You can save a lot of bandwidth and storage that is meaning you can save a lot of money in return. What happens is what your data is going through a couple of segments of deduplication, hashing of blocks, compression, encryption, and signing with your own personal key that never leaves your computer. And then once these steps are done, your files are a lot less bigger and a lot less more, a lot more encrypted. And then they are stored in Amazon's cloud, AWS, in some way with other data. No one else can access it, not even the Tarsnap folks, by the way. And then one fateful day when you need your files back, hopefully later than sooner, you will be able to download those files using the Tarsnap client and use your personal key to unencrypt that. No one else who has not the key cannot make any sense of that data gibberish. Clients are available for any kind of Unix systems, uh, BSDs, Linuxes, Mac OSs, if that's a Unix system for you. And Windows clients are available with Sequin or a native client as well. So no reason actually to not use Starsnap and not start making a backup. 
pricing is very competitive and easy to <laughs> figure out once you have uh, made your uh, pico dollar uh, calculations it's very useful and easy check out the website with documentation technical details or uh, the bug bounty they run they keep still running that but apparently people don't find anything new so that should give you an indication that tarsnap is actually quite good All right, now it's time for feedback and questions. Luckily, we got some feedback and questions, and I guess we will receive a lot more once people recognize that this is episode 400 and they might as well congratulate us for running this long. Uh, so whatever is on your mind, comments, show ideas, topics, anything you want to discuss or ask us, this is your email address, feedback at bsdnow.tv. The first person who has written us or that we cover this episode is uh, Vasilis, if I'm not mistaken, yep, about an upgrade question. Uh, always important to check out. So he writes, hi, Alan, Benedict, JT, and I guess TJ, Tom Jones. <laughs> Yeah, um, he hopes you're we're doing well. Yes, we're doing um, because of uh, our show and uh, Michael W. Lucas' absolute free BSD. I started my BSD journey. Hey, great! And joined this wonderful community. Thank you for the great show. Well, thank you for joining. It's uh, kind of nice to have you here. Uh, in the summer, I set up a computer with an AMD APU 3200G, and as a newbie, I ran 12.2 release. I look forward to installing 13 release as it includes the AMD GPU drivers that will give me fully functionality or full functionality of the GPU component. Ah, great, see? Uh, my system has an SSD as Z root and two iron wolves as a ZFS mirror pool for my data files. Excellent. I haven't updated the pools of ZS uh, to ZFS 2.0 yet. So my question is, in order to properly upgrade the system without messing the pool, shall I do Z FS export my pool before I install the new system and after installation run ZFS import my pool? Uh, so uh, it would be zpool export and import, but uh, no, you shouldn't need to do that. So upgrading the version of FreeBSD you're running will not change the ZFS version of the pool. You have to run zpool upgrade in the pool name to do that. Uh, so it's a separate step and isn't done automatically, specifically to avoid these problems. Um, and running an upgrade won't change anything on that second pool unless uh, some data set on that second pool is mounted in one of the paths that FreeBSD will update. Uh, like, you know, slash USR or, or slash bar or something. Uh, so you don't have to export your, your mirror pool of data files uh, in order to safely upgrade. Uh, but if you want to, it's okay to do that as long as none of the files are in use. Uh, you know, it's, you can't export the zroot pool uh, because you're using that file system. Uh, so while not required, you can if you are paranoid. Yeah, and for each major upgrade or any kind of system upgrade to a boot environment to be safe to get back uh, or even do a snapshot of the or checkpoint of the whole root pool, right? Right, uh, that was one thing I was going to mention. You can create a checkpoint before you run zpool upgrade in case it doesn't work somehow, but uh, that's probably not necessary. But yeah, a snapshot would let you undo any files that got changed. But a zpool checkpoint allows you to undo zpool upgrade or even zfs destroy. But while a checkpoint exists, you never free or overwrite any space on your disk, so you can't keep them around very long. Mm. Yeah, so he doesn't have any tarsnap backups yet, and doesn't have uh, doesn't want to lose the data in the zfs mirror pool. Uh, but thanks us for your hard time and efforts. 
and hopes oh yes i hopes uh he we will manage to handle the situation soon yeah i think you will be fine and be able to meet in person again in uh, bsd can oh yes that would be great um just a little while longer and i guess uh, we will have that opportunity cool uh, yeah, so just in general you really do want to have a backup you know yeah if, if the data on that mirror is important uh you you definitely want don't want the mirror to be the only copy of it yes a mirror is not a backup per se um but yeah i think you'll be fine and uh, good luck with the upgrade and if you have further questions let us know we're always happy to help uh newbies because we've all been there okay then we have dennis uh, with a zfs question or even more than one uh dennis writes hi alan benedict and tom jones or tom just Tom, it's probably easier. Um, <laughs> thank you for running the show. Thanks to your show and especially the feedback and questions section, I'm able to deepen my knowledge of FreeBSD and ZFS. Yes, that's one reason why we do this. Alas, the time has come for me to ask for help with ZFS. Excellent. Here we go. I had a ZFS pool with a single 8 terabyte drive in it. My plan was to buy another drive later and ZPool attach it. Instead, I bought two 12 terabyte drives, so I first ran ZPool attach my pool, a terabyte drive, new 12 terabyte drive, and waited for the resilver process to finish. Then I ran ZPool detach my pool, a terabyte drive, followed by ZPool attach 12, new, new 12T drive, another and another 12T drive, yeah, and waited for the resilving to finish. Unfortunately, this one didn't go so well. Ah, ZPool status minus V for my pool output indicated that there was some issue um we got the output here so i'm not reading that uh so it says error yeah, it looks errors. like um the first drive had a couple of checksum errors and the second drive actually has some read and write errors suggesting either a problem with the cabling or a serious problem with the drive uh, and some of those errors have percolated all the way up so both copies in the mirror are bad uh yeah. and so there was some data loss, although looking at the output of zpool list dash or zpool status dash v, uh, the loss was two bits of metadata and no actual files. Oh, okay, so that could be uh, restored somehow. Uh, so he ran smartctl dash a on all drives and another 12 terabyte. Uh, the one that backs the other one had smart errors. Ah, here we go. I'll be replacing the drive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the, the second drive that he added. Uh, the last drive that he added actually has some smart errors, which corresponds with the read and write errors we see uh, on the disk there. Uh, okay. So his first question is, can I just run zpool clear to get rid of those errors? I'm fairly confident that the drive itself is healthy. Yes. Yeah, so if you just run zpool clear, it resets all the error counts to zero. Uh, and if there are any disks that are uh, suspended, it will unsuspend them, uh, which you know I've seen happen when uh, I had a storage server in my basement and I had a, a JBot, an external chassis full of drives to add more drives to it and the uh power cable got jostled and all those drives lost power for a minute uh and so the pool which was made of all those drives plus a bunch of other drives um that were in the, the main chassis uh basically had to pause and wait for those drives to come back and zpool clear is how you wake it up again uh so doing a zpool clear and then a scrub uh will basically recheck it all and see if there's still uh problems there the fact that you got some errors on the first of the 12 terabyte drives uh, suggests something might else might be the matter. Or in particular, if you're getting the read and write errors on that second drive and you don't think there's anything wrong with it, 
then I would definitely check the cabling and, and like we said, uh, right. do another scrub. Then and see. The second question is, I'm reasonably sure that the old uh, 8 terabyte drive is in a good condition with scrubs running regularly and smart status is good. Uh, so I thought that I could just zpool import the old drive under a new pool name, nuke the new 12 terabyte drive and zpool attach it again. But zpool import doesn't see the old drive. Is there a way to import a detached drive as a new pool? So because the grid of the pool is the same, it'll be a little more difficult. Uh, in particular, what you probably want to do is uh, do it from uh, another system if you have it, or have basically boot off the USB stick or your, your Z root drive or whatever without either the 12 terabytes connected and only the 8 terabyte. And because the remove was finished, you might have to do a zpool import with, I think it's capital D to look for deleted pools. All the pools not deleted, it's just the VDAP. So basically the label on that eight terabyte, eight terabyte drive uh, is basically marked as not part of the pool anymore. Uh, I'm sure there's a way to get it to be recognized again. I'm just not sure off the top of my head what that would be. But uh, basically without the 12 terabytes connected, try to import it as a deleted pool uh, by looking at the zpool import man page and see if that helps um, or get you anywhere. Uh, in which case then yes, um, as long as you actually have enough SATA ports to connect three drives at once, uh, I would have recommended from the beginning keeping the 8 terabyte drive in until both of the 12s have been joined in part of the mirror because when you only had one at a time, it meant that um, if a couple of blocks on the first of the two new disks uh, was bad, then the copy that you end up with on the second disk wasn't going to be any good either. Mm -hmm. And question three, if I just run zpool attach new 12 terabyte drive to uh, an eight terabyte drive, will the corruption be fixed because the old drive presumably contains intact data or eight terabyte drive will be overwritten or resilvered based on what is on the new 12 terabyte drive, thus propagating the corrupted data? Yeah, because the 12 terabyte drive contains newer transactions, it will try to fast forward the eight terabyte drive forward. Uh, now, it depends where the corruption is, whether that means it will suddenly be able to fix some stuff or not. But I think what you end up wanting to do is import that eight terabyte drive as the old version of the pool. Uh, and if it's fine to lose the data over whatever time span since then to then uh, basically attach the two 12 terabyte drives as new drives. Uh, so basically recreate the Geli on them so that they don't contain any content. Uh, and this will let you get the two working drives and your data uh, because trying to unwind the corruption you have on the new drives with the old drive is likely to uh, just result in a bunch of frustration and wasted time. Mm. Okay, uh, but we hope we get you started uh, fixing that and you have your pool back in a bigger fashion and in actually correct data um, this time. Cool, thanks for your question. And the next is actually from Tom, and I guess Tom should also cover this. Via Tom. Anyway. Or via Tom. <laughs> I can read it if you like. No, let Tom. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I understand what's happened. <laughs> okay, You've been thrown under the bus. That's what's happened. <laughs> too, too many windows. Um, the, the question is from Daniel Detlaff, uh, and it came via the FreeBSD Discord server. 
Um, I have a question regarding KTLS and its real-world usability for end users. Is it only useful useful for people with 100 gigabit NICs for like $1,000 plus? Is there a reason why it's still not enabled by default? At least the OpenSSL side. Is it even worth playing with for slower 10 gigabit networks? Does it only affect throughput or latency? And he says that he did an Nginx build, but it was very difficult to figure out how to get any hard info and how to configure or, or evaluate this. Yeah, so the documentation does need a little bit of improvement. A bunch of the bits for this have, have been turned on by default in 14 now. I think I committed at least one or two of the bits to enable a bunch of this by default. Um, so the first part of the question, is it useful only at 100 gigabits? No, it's useful generally. Uh, as we talked about a bit before, when we were talking about this in the 13 release notes, um, the KTLS stuff basically re-enables send file, which, you know, that optimization mattered at one gigabit. Uh, of course, you know, computers were a lot smaller back in FreeBSD 4 days and only had one CPU. But um, <clears throat> it does a couple of things, especially since the extra mitigations have been added for Spectrum Meltdown and things like that. The cost of flipping back and forth between the kernel and user land is a bit higher now than it used to be. Uh, so being able to avoid that by just having Nginx say, hey, kernel, why don't you copy this byte range from this file descriptor to this socket uh, and encrypt it with this key and leave me out of it uh, lets it go quite a bit faster. Um, it's also what we call zero copy. So the idea is that uh, when the file system, uh, re or when the kernel reads the file, uh, in from disk, it puts it in the buffer cache so that if you read the same file again in a minute, you get it from memory. Um, but what KTLS and send file allows to happen is the kernel will actually borrow that memory um, and use it all the way through the network stack to actually copy that data out to the network card. Whereas in the non-KTLS version, uh, you would actually end up with that data in the kernel twice. Uh, and you know, without send file and KTLS, you'd, even if you were doing it all in the kernel, you ended up copying it out of the file system part of the code and into the network part of the code in order to send it out. Uh, but with KTLS, you can avoid that and just reuse that one copy that's already in memory and, and kind of pass the pointer around between the different parts of the system. Uh, so yes, even on smaller systems, it can make a difference, especially on really small systems. So if you have a, a, very, a machine with very low amount of CPU, um, you can save a lot by not having to switch back and forth between the web server and the kernel and just have the kernel do all the work. Yeah, the, the documentation around it is still a little weak, um, but I, part of that is even just on the Nginx side, getting it to to all be right. You, you basically have to have OpenSSL with all the right bits enabled, although the OpenSSL built into base on FreeBSD now has that turned on in 14 anyway, I think in 13, I'm not sure. I remember when that first happened, it was causing weird issues with um, SVN when people didn't have the ASNI module loaded by default. Although that was something else that happened in 13 is that's loaded by default now. Uh, so that you're, if you do use kernel TLS, it won't be really, really slow software version of TLS. <laughs> um, uh, but yes, it should provide uh, a bunch of advantages at even 10 gigabit. It mostly comes down to if you're actually using it. So what is your use case for it? If it's Nginx, then yes, it will help a lot. And uh, it's also in the future will help with NFS. Uh, but it's not going to help uh, with other things that don't uh, basically use send file to get the data from the file system out the network. Uh, 
because you're still going to basically end up reading from the file descriptor and writing to the socket in user space. Uh, whereas with KTLS, you basically have SendFile do that work for you. Uh, so KTLS is basically just re-enabling SendFile uh, for the case where you need TLS encryption, whereas in the past, you could only use SendFile if you weren't encrypting things. Uh, the one thing I'm very interested to find out more about and measure is what performance difference there is when using KTLS with ZFS. Um, so because ZFS has its own buffer cache and doesn't use the OS buffer cache, when you use send file on ZFS, you end up with two copies, the one in the arc and then one copied into the buffer cache uh, that can then be shared and used uh, by the network stack. Um, so traditionally, if you were doing unencrypted stuff uh, or whatever, it was advised in Nginx to turn send file off on ZFS because having that extra copy was usually uh, you know, eliminating the benefit. Uh, the whole point of, of send file was to reduce the number of copies you had. And uh, when you're using send file and ZFS together, you were doing the extra copy, but actually keeping more data in memory as well. Um, and so it was advised to turn it off. Now with KTLS, the question is, is it still faster than doing it in user space, uh, even with the extra copy? Uh, and I'd love to see some experimentation happen there and find out uh, what the answer is. And then as well, you know, I've started some research into actually making SendFile and ZFS cooperate and basically have ZFS loan out a buffer from its arc uh, to the, the network stack so that uh, you can actually get to zero copy with ZFS, uh, but we're still a little ways from getting to that. You know, that, that's at the prototype stage. <laughs> And so he also asked um, if KTLS will just affect throughput or also latency. Uh, um, right. And it, it might affect throughput. It depends where the throughput bottleneck was. If the bottleneck was the network, then it won't make a difference. And if the bottleneck was disk, it won't make a difference. But if there's some combination of um, mode switches, then it will have an effect. What you will typically see is for the same throughput, lower CPU consumption. Mm -hmm. And this is why it will help on lower end systems. It will affect latency in both directions, depending where you look. It will have lower latency from the disk to the network, but using send file can have higher latency for, for anything if you're going to drop it into an interactive mode. So yeah, these numbers are always great to talk about. Yeah, I think in general, you're going to see it being better. That's why it was made. Um, and yeah, I think the, the main point is to reduce CPU usage and, uh, you know, on the Netflix scale, you also run into problems of memory bandwidth. You can only copy so much data around in memory at once. And by reducing the number of times you copy the same data around, you can not run into that limit as much. Uh, but that mostly manifests as extra time spent on the CPU waiting for the memory copies to happen and so on. So yeah, I think the biggest thing it'll do is reduce CPU usage. Uh, especially from the context switching. Uh, so you probably will see lower latency, but maybe not such lower latency that you would notice on the network scale, right? You, the latency improvements will be on the, the CPU scale, not the network scale. So it's, it's probably not going to save a bunch of milliseconds off, but uh, it does seem to be worth using. Uh, and uh, it would be nice to get the, the documentation around it tightened up a bit so that it's easy to see what you have to do to enable it in OpenSSL in Nginx and, and in Kernel. But I think 
OpenSL and base has it on by default now, and the kernel has it on, but maybe only in 14. I don't. I think it was too late in the release process when I committed that to consider backporting it to 13. Okay. Well, that's a lot of feedback, but uh, gives us a better uh, understanding of you know what it's used for and what it's going to do. Great. So thanks for this uh, question, and that pretty much wraps up our 400th episode. Wow. Still impressed. So yeah, you know when we started this. Back in 2013, uh, I remember the first thought when the idea came up in early 2013 was, surely there won't be enough news to do this every single week for a while, let alone for, it's been what, like eight years now? For you, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and I, I wasn't aware that we were going to start with a TJ and then replace them with a JT and then add a different TJ. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and so on either uh but it has been quite an adventure and uh you know we're not planning on stopping we've made some adjustments to try to make the show a bit easier to do as you saw you know we switched to audio only around episode 300 and something i think it was uh has it been that long since we did audio only yeah i don't recall the I exact so. episode yeah. but could be i'm pretty sure it was 300 ish yeah. um jeez and you know we survived uh leaving our, our podcast network and going it alone. Uh, so we'll still be here. And uh, big, big thanks to Tom to helping make sure that we'll be able to keep to our schedule and, and keep this going yeah. and not slowly Definitely. trail off into nothing. It's, a, mm -hmm. it's a, a great honor to be able to contribute to something that's given me hours of enjoyment in the past and, and kept me abreast of the community. So I'm really glad to be able to help keep the show going. Yeah, and thanks to everyone who has uh, been listening to us over the years and providing us feedback. Otherwise, this would have been a very boring show after a while. And so uh, it's all thanks to you people listening and watching when there was a video. Yeah, I don't have an exact figure in front of me, but I'm pretty sure we've produced more than 500 hours of content. Uh, I'm not going to claim all of it was good, but that is... That is a lot of time. <laughs> and yeah. I know there's a lot of people that have listened to a good majority of that 500 hours. Yeah, definitely the fans from beginning yeah. uh, episode one till now. Yeah. We're, we're just glad you're all uh, bothering to listen to us. Uh, and we especially thank everyone who's ever written in some feedback uh, because that's how we know that anybody's listening. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and exactly. We, we make sure that we have interesting stuff to talk about, and how we—I think the, it's the part of the show that helps people the most. Uh, and I'm I'm very thankful to Tom for his, his kind words just now as well. Uh, you know, knowing mm -hmm. that people actually get value out of this, and it isn't just noise in the background or us <laughs> screaming into the void is uh, is quite something. Okay, so then you will have an episode four hundred one in the future so stay with us for another week